and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to Ian Rankin. So Ian's the best-selling author of the Rebus books, a crime fiction series of 23 novels. He spoke to us about how he wrote his latest Rebus book, which is called House of Lies. It's out now. And as well as how he made ends meet as a struggling writer at the start of his career, including the odd jobs he juggled on the side, and his thoughts on why crime fiction sells so well. It was a brilliant conversation with some very amusing anecdotes as well, and we hope you enjoy it. Okay, so we're here at Orion Towers in London with Ian Rankin, who's kindly uh, taken time to speak to the podcast. So, Ian, could you talk a bit uh, to start off with about your, your kind of early interest in writing, when, when you were first interested in, in writing in general, perhaps writing in fiction? Uh, well, it was very early, very early. Um, I was a compulsive reader, and where that came from, I don't know. My parents, kind of working class, left school at 15, didn't have many books in the house, but I was just fascinated by words and by pictures. So I started off with comics. It was, you know, it was the DC Thompson and Dundee produced all these cheap comics, which we didn't know at the time, but were affordable literacy and were the first rung of the ladder towards reading novels. So I would read lots of comics, but it wasn't enough even at that age, seven, eight, nine, ten. It wasn't enough just to read the comics. I wanted to create them. So I'd get bits of paper and fold them in half and break them up into squares and have little stick figures. And I would create free gifts to put on the front. I would make little badges and things. And these were limited to one of each and uh, one copy of each comic. Uh, And I just did it in my bedroom for fun. You know, and when I got into pop music, it wasn't enough to listen to pop. I wanted to be in a band, so I created a band in my head and on paper, and wrote all their lyrics and designed their album sleeves. And you know, all kids have this incredibly fertile, active imagination, and writers are just kids who refuse to grow up. Do you remember your very first piece of writing? Uh, probably not, but it probably it would have been a comic. I would have thought it would have been you know a little bit of paper with some maybe a football story or a war story, something like or a story set in outer space. Um, the first writing I had any success with was my first ever poem. I'd been writing song lyrics for non-existent bands, but when I was seventeen, there was a poetry competition announced in Scotland for people up to the age of eighteen, and I submitted a poem called Euthanasia, the Mercy Killing of the Elderly. And uh, it won second prize. How old were you then? I was 17. It won second prize. So that was me. By the time I got to university, I was a published poet. (laughs) And you you studied literature at Edinburgh University. Where, both at that time and subsequently, have you seen the relationship between the academic study of of literature and the, the creative act of writing? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's fraught. It's fraught. I mean, I was kind of lucky in a way, I think, that I was at university at a time in the UK before creative writing courses were ubiquitous. There was, the, I think UEA would have been the only one back then. Um, there was a writer-in-residence who would come to Edinburgh uh, University, and if you wanted to, you could hand in work to them and they would comment on it. Um, so I would do that. But there I was studying literature, thinking I was going to be a professor, I was going to, be, I was going to teach literature, and in the margins of my life I would write stories and books that a few people might want to read. Um, and I was supposed to be doing my PhD on Muriel Spark, the Edinburgh novelist, uh, in the mid-80s. And I thought, what would Muriel want? I've got three years of funding, three years of fixed funding to do this PhD. Would she want me to write a PhD that will be read by a few fusty academics? Uh, or would she like me to use this time profitably to try and become a novelist? Now, I didn't know her, so I just answered for her. And her answer to me was, Ian, use these three years to write novels. 
So I wrote three novels in three years and never did quite finish the PhD. But the third of the novels was the first Rebus book, first Inspector Rebus book. And I read that you, you wrote in your diary, I think it was 1985, that you had this idea for a novel, which would be the first Rebus, that started as one situation and has blossomed into a whole plot. And you said that you could write it basically up to circa page 250. I loved how specific that was. What was that situation that, that, that prompted that, that whole idea for a book? Um, it was, uh, I mean, I remember it well. I was sitting in my student digs, uh, uh, staring at the gas fire, and I just got the notion of this guy who was being tormented, teased by little messages that were being sent to him, picture puzzles, a rebus is a picture puzzle, that were being sent to him uh, by someone from his past. And I wrote, I, I scribbled down that note straight away and said the main character may be a cop. And I wrote about three pages of notes that first night, and I thought, that's enough for a novel. And it felt to me like it could be a two. It actually wasn't a two hundred and fifty page novel. I think it was about a hundred and eighty page novel. It turned out it was very short, as crime fiction was back then. Um, but yeah, it kind of just it just presented itself to me, almost fully formed, which was quite. An, it's always exciting um, when an idea comes to you like that. And what were the mechanics of of getting your first novel published in terms of agent, publisher? How did you go about that? Well, I'd had one book published before Rebus. I did the book called The Flood. And now, I'd written three, I told you I wrote three books in three years. The first book was called Summer Rites, R-I-T-E-S, and was my attempt at a literary novel, but also a comedy of manners. It was set in a posh hotel in the highlands of Scotland. And I had uh, come second in a, po- in a short story competition and the winner, Ian Crichton-Smith, was quite a well-known writer and his publisher was Galanx in London. So I badgered him and he eventually got me an introduction to Livia Galanx, who ran the company. So I sent the manuscript of Summer Rights off to her and she sent it back and she said, the first two-thirds are interesting and good, but the last third needs a lot of work. And I thought, what does she know? I've written a great Scottish novel here, she just can't see it. So I refused to change a word of it, and nobody published it, and it just went into the bottom drawer. The next book was called The Flood, and that was a literary novel set in the village where I grew up in Fife. And that I sent to a small publisher that was just starting out in Edinburgh called Polygon. And Polygon was actually owned and run by Edinburgh University Students Association. And they had a very early hit with James Kelman's first novel. Um, so they were looking around for the next generation of writers and they took a punt on The Flood, my, uh, my first published novel. They published 200 hardback, 600 paperback. It didn't sell out, um, but it got the interest of an agent and the agent said to me, what are you doing now? I said, well, I'm working on a crime novel with a guy called Rebus. And she took it to six London publishers and the first five turned it down. I know this because I've got all the correspondence. I've kept everything. Um, and the sixth, Bodley Head, said yes. Um, and it was a complete failure in terms of sales and people noticing that it. it got reviewed hardly at all, didn't pick up any prizes, sold very few copies. But in those days, if a publisher liked you, they would keep you around. And so I did another book and another book and another book, and slowly but surely things picked up. Crime as a genre, was it to do with Alan Massey telling you to you know, write crime because you won't get the kudos but you'll get the cash? Was that an influence for why you chose the genre? Was uh, why crime? No, he said that afterwards. Uh, he said it when the book was published, Knots and Crosses was published, and it went into the crime section in the bookshops, and I was horrified. I didn't want to be in the crime section. I wanted to be in the literature section beside Muriel Spark and Robert Louis Stevenson. 
Um, and so I would actually take it out of the crime section and put it in the literary section of the bookshop and then go back the next day and find it back in the crime section again. <laughs> and I said to Alan Massey, who was a writer in residence at Edinburgh University at that time, and had been very helpful to me, he was the guy who introduced me to the guy who became my first editor at Bodley Head, because Bodley Head published Alan Massey at that time as well. And he said to me, uh, I, I said to him, look, I seem to have become a crime writer by accident. And he said, well, you may not get the kudos, but you might get some cash. Uh, and I thought, well, that'll do me. You know, working class kid. I know what I'd settle for. I'd rather have the cash than the kudos. So maybe I'll just keep writing these books. So then I started reading crime fiction because I really hadn't written any, uh, read any crime fiction until then. And I liked it. I liked the sense of place. I liked the characterization. What were you reading? Uh, it started off, it was Ruth Rendell because her latest book was just out. Live Flesh was her latest book and it was advertised widely. I thought, okay, I'll pick that up. And then having read that, I went back and read some of her earlier ones. P.D. James I picked up, of course. Uh, Reginald Hill, um, I liked his books. My wife was a, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, she was a big fan of Reginald Hill. Um, the Americans, when I started to read American crime fiction, that really appealed to me. I liked the muscular style, I liked the urban settings, and I liked the, uh, the sense of doom. Uh, and also the sense that you can have lots of loose ends in American crime fiction it, fiction, it seemed to me. And not every loose end had to be tied up. And eventually a couple of writers became a big influence on me. One early one was Lawrence Block um, and then James Elroy. And with, you know, Elroy, it seems, uh, had this very disrupted youth and young adulthood himself. And, and perhaps, uh, you know, and he's written that book about trying to find out who killed his mum and things like that. Did you feel that there was some kind of personal experience that you were also picking at through writing about crime? No, I don't think so. I don't think that at all. I, 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 in fact, quite the opposite. The first published novel, The Flood, had got me in a lot of trouble because it was basically set in my hometown and nobody liked the fact that I was writing about this hometown in not a very nice way. Uh, some nasty characters were in the book. So Rebus was created as a defence mechanism. I thought nobody can see 24-year-old PhD student Ian Rankin in this 40-year-old cop who left school at 15. So um, there was, that was a defence mechanism. But I really wanted to write about Edinburgh. Edinburgh was my notion of the central character in the books, and I thought crime fiction was a good way to explore Edinburgh, and Rebus was a good character to allow me to explore Edinburgh from top to bottom, because a detective has an access all areas pass. He can go and talk to the people who run the city one minute and the people at the bottom of the heap the next minute. Um, so he was very useful to me as a, as a means of, of showing people Edinburgh from top to bottom. You, you've talked about how, you know, you, as a student, you used to drink in the Oxford bar and you would see coppers there sometimes. Was Rebus ever based on any conversations you heard or a particular policeman that you'd see there? I've met plenty of cops down the years who've said either they are the basis for Rebus <laughs> or that they, they had someone like Rebus in the station with them. Not just Edinburgh cops, but cops all over the world go, we used to have a guy like him. A guy who just pushed it, kept pushing it, kept bending the rules. Um, Is that what you wanted, to have that kind of universal? Yeah, well, I wanted a maverick. I mean, I wanted someone who wasn't a goody two-shoes. I wanted a complex character, someone who might cross the line, and you're always wondering if he might stay the wrong side of the line. Um, you know, he, he was based on a lot of these American uh, detectives and private detectives in the books I was reading. Um, Matt Scudder is an ex-cop who's now a private eye he's in um, a lot of Lawrence Block's books and there's a lot of he's an alcoholic to the extent he doesn't drink anymore and I think I took some bits of Rebus's personality from him but no he pretty much Rebus pretty much jumped fully formed into my head and wasn't like anybody I knew or anybody I'd met 
And do you think crime fiction today, I mean, you alluded to how the, the rules were a bit different when you started out. Is it, is it fundamentally different or regarded as a kind of different thing and post The Wire, post you know, the, the huge takeoff of the show? Or do you think you're operating in a different field? I don't, think it's, I don't think it's got much to do with The Wire, but I do think there have been a lot of changes. I think a lot of writers who a generation or two back would have wanted to write literature or be thought of as literary authors see no problem writing crime fiction now because if, if you know, like me, you think crime fiction takes on the biggest moral questions available to us, why do we human beings keep doing terrible things to each other? Um, good and evil, uh, moral responsibility, all that, political intrigue, what's happening in politics, what's happening in commerce, what's happening in the corporations, um, who's lying to us and why, who's manipulating the, the media, who's manipulating the facts. This is meat and drink to crime writers. and uh, It takes you back to some very big moral questions about how far you would go if you were pushed to protect your loved ones, for example. Say someone breaks into your house and is going to kill your partner or your kids or whatever, would you kill them first? Big questions. And crime fiction takes that on and always has done. But I think a younger generation of writers have come along now who are bringing literary chops, in the American phrase, to the genre. So it's not anymore about obscure poisons and games of billiards and vicars with something to hide and this very polite Middle England, pastoral England that gets shaken up by murder but because of nice, polite people, a Miss Marple or a Lord Peter Whimsey, everything goes back to normal at the end because they solve the crime. It's much messier than that, it's more urban than that, and it's very much dealing with the problems that are happening to us right now all around us, but written in, in, uh, written very with a great deal of style. Crime fiction now outsells any other type of fiction, apparently, as of 2018. Do you think, what, do you, what would you attribute that that surge in popularity to would, would you say it was all the kind of uh, issues politically and socially that we're dealing with I think year? it's everything I've just spoken about mm. I think you know I mean, crime fiction gives you the whole package if you want escapism you can get it in crime fiction if you want to confront big moral questions you can get it in crime fiction if you want to find out about parts of the world that you don't know anything about go to the crime fiction you know you want to find out about Barcelona or China or Australia get the crime fiction. You'll get a sense of place, you'll get a sense of the culture, you'll get a sense of uh, what social issues they're dealing with, their past, their present, their potential future. You'll get a roller coaster ride of a book so you won't know that you're learning all this stuff. It's not that we're pontificating, we're not lecturing you, we're giving you a great story, but in, in the midst of that great story, all this other stuff is happening. You're getting to find new, you're getting to explore new worlds. Um, uh, and so I think it's a complete package, and I think that's part of it, uh, a large part of it. So, you know, it is escapism, it is fantasy. You know, in real life, murders aren't always cleared up, we don't always get justice. In crime fiction, we mostly do, because readers kind of demand it. They demand that, little, that extensive closure that the real world doesn't provide. But, and that's why crime fiction wasn't taken seriously for a long mm. time, especially in the UK, was that it did seem like a, like a construct but now the writers that are coming along are going, well, we're going to leave our books a bit messy. We're not going to clear it all up. And readers are aware now that when, you, you know, when your Miss Marple or your Lord Peter Whimsey or the modern-day equivalent solves the crime, nothing goes back to normal. The village doesn't go back to being normal because the world has been shaken up irreparably by the crime. And, and House of Lies is all about deception, as the title suggests, and it's, it's just been published this month. Was that 
reflecting the kind of political situation that we're seeing at the moment, particularly in the US. <laughs> it's funny, a few folk have said that to me on Twitter. They've gone, oh, it's really about the White House. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> uh, no, I, well, it, yeah, it's about deception. It's about the, it's about the lies that, that cops used to be able to get away with uh, a generation or two back. The way they would be, they could manipulate the media. Not everybody had a phone that could take photographs, so that you couldn't have evidence. There was no CCTV, so you could you could you could you could get away with stuff back then in a way that you can't get away with stuff now. Um, and and people would just routinely lie and and get away with it, uh, whether they were the good guys or the bad guys. Uh, and I was very interested in that notion of this 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 house of lies, and the big house is what the police in Edinburgh always used to call the headquarters. So in some ways it is that it's this kind of notion that within this police force a lot of a lot of stuff was being covered up, and the uh, people weren't the civilians weren't getting told the truth, but also there's a kind of proper whodunit element in the story that's a family a dysfunctional family and a boy has apparently a teenage boy has apparently killed his girlfriend and uh, there's a lot happening in that house in the house where he grew up uh, and people are also lying to each other there. So it works on a couple of levels. I mean, I, when I got the when I got the title, I just thought that's perfect. All I need now is a house and some lies. <laughs> I got the title first. On the the genre piece, you mentioned this your first novel physically moving it from one section of the bookshelf to the other. Have you ever had kind of discussions about how your book should be presented or covered or things like that? And I think with this about John Le Carre, who if you look at his, the way his early stuff mm. foil covers look like <clears throat> Tom Clancy, but now is published in these very refined editions. Mm-hmm. Have you had that kind of discussion? Yeah, I mean, that was a big breakthrough, actually, was when, you know, the early books were kind of guns and knives and dark and bodies lying in heaps and all the rest of it. They looked like crime fiction. And then I wrote Black and Blue, which I felt was a much bigger book, bigger thematically, more literate, more more literary in some ways, a more confident book uh, co- with a complex structure. And my publisher, and it was Orion, uh, where we're sitting just now, um, gave it a different look. It didn't look like any other crime novel on the market. The the block lettering on the front, the colour that font that the the colour they used, the font they used, it was a kind of um, uh, moody black and white photograph. No people in it. No guns. No knives. No bodies. It looked like a literary novel. When was that published? So that would have been about 92. Okay. In fact, it might have been a lot later than that. I can't remember. And have you been with Orion for the whole... I've been with Orion since Orion's day one. So not my day one, but Orion's day one. Um, I mean, it's one of those kind of... You know, I've just... I, I, my editor, who took me to Bodley Head, then left Bodley Head and went to a small company called Barry and Jenkins. I went with him. Barry and Jenkins got swallowed up by Century. I went with him to Century. And then the boss of Century, Anthony Cheatham, got kind of kicked out in a pooch and started up Orion, and I went with him. So I've kind of followed people I like, and I've been with Orion for over 20 years now, because they've been around for over 20 years. You've talked about when with Knots and Crosses, sorry, when it was you were struggling to make money and you were worried about your publisher dropping you and whether you'd have to give up. Can you talk a little bit about how you overcame that, that, that struggle and those worries? Well, I mean, I was very lucky in the early days. My wife had a job and she was supporting me. She believed in me and she wanted me to be a full-time writer. So she was subsidising me for a while. Uh, but she also persuaded me we needed to get out of London at some point if I was going to be a full-time writer. We couldn't afford to live in London. We couldn't afford to take the hit by losing a salary. 
Um, so we, she, she said, let's go and live in France. So we went and lived in France in a ramshackle farmhouse with very little money. And suddenly I was getting a bit panicky and I was having to write two books a year just to make enough money to live on because the books weren't selling very well. And the publisher didn't want two Rebus novels a year. So I, and I created this character, Jack Harvey, a pseudonym, and wrote thrillers under that name for a little while till I was making enough money from the Rebus books. Uh, and it was kind of fraught. You know, there were a lot of times when I thought I was going to be dumped because I was mid-list, as it's called, which means you're selling, you're ticking over, you've got fans, you're selling a few copies, you're making a little bit of money for the publisher, but they can't get excited about you. They don't know if you're ever going to break out from that mid-list. And then Black and Blue came along, and I, I remember it vividly. It was uh, towards the end of the year, there was a little teaser in the Times newspaper and it said the best crime novel of next year is published next week. So it was like early January. I thought, who the hell's written that? And then I bought the paper the following week and there was Marcel Berlin's, the crime fiction reviewer, saying Black and Blue is the best novel I'll read all year. And that was like the first week of January. Oh. And come November of that year, it won the Gold Dagger, which persuaded my publishers I knew what I was doing, persuaded me that everything was going to be okay. And that was Rebus novel number, what, eight or nine, I think? So it was a long way into the series. And suddenly I thought, okay, you know, I know what I'm doing. They know that I know what I'm doing. Uh, and and that, although Black and Blue wasn't a bestseller, it didn't hit the top 10. The next book, I think, did. It got one week in the top 10. And the book after that, I think, got to number one. Are rewards big, important markers in in? You mean prizes, literary yeah, prizes, prizes and stuff? Yeah. I think they're really useful when you're young because it means somebody believes in you. Somebody thinks you're doing okay. I mean, winning a gold dagger was huge for me. It wasn't financially huge. It just was a, a huge thing saying, yeah, you keep going. You, you're good at this. You know, you really are good at this. Don't give up. Because, you know, I, I thought at times, I thought, oh, maybe I'll try and write something different. I'll try and write horror. Seems to be a market for horror. There's a market for sci-fi. I mean, I want to be a writer, but um, to be a full-time writer, I would, I, would have, I would have moved away from crime fiction if uh, the Rebus books weren't going to sell. I had a family to support by that stage had uh, first son had come along I think by that stage um, so yeah prizes I mean they still are it's nice to get it's always nice to get prizes and it's nice when crime fiction you know whenever a crime writer gets himself long listed for the Booker Prize we all go yay you know we all we got crime writing community is a very supportive community not like the literary community not backstabbing very supportive community I mean someone like Lee Child for example a you know billionaire bestseller is always writing blurbs for first-time novelists to try and, you know, to, saying how good they are, giving them a leg up, giving them a lift up, uh, appearing at festivals and talking to journalists about new writers, young writers, giving quotes for books, all the rest of it. And there's a lot of that goes on in the literary genre, that, uh, in, sorry, in the crime genre, that I don't see so much in other genres. Do you find yourself giving a lot of advice to young crime writers? And, and if so, what kind of advice do you give them, particularly in terms of overcoming that kind of... Um, financial yeah. struggle well yeah, you know what I mean the, 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 the industry has changed so much since I started that I don't know if I've got much advice I can give I mean people often say to me do I get a publisher a traditional publisher or do I go self the publishing route I don't know do I publish ebooks do I do ebooks mm. or do I try and get a traditional deal I don't know I've always just gone for traditional books um, some writers are making a real go of it with ebooks you know they start off by selling them at a quid or giving away for free and in two or three books in, once you're hooked as a reader, suddenly you're having to pay two ninety nine or three ninety nine, um, and they're making plenty of money off that. Uh, festivals, the rise of festivals, has meant that you're you spend a lot of your time not writing. Mm. As a full time writer, you spend an awful lot of time marketing yourself, 
being a brand, but not actually writing any books. Can, can we talk about your, your non-writing jobs, which are quite eclectic, <laughs> certainly from your, your bio. So, Great Picker, Swineherd, yeah. Punk, Hi-Fi Journalist. Yeah. Could you tell us about that, but also about when, like, how much of that you were doing, how you fitted it around your writing, when you were able to you know, put the pigs down? Put the pigs down, bless them. I actually did kill a pig accidentally one time, which was the end of my career as a swineherd. Uh, no, that was a really short-term thing. When I left university in 82, my girlfriend and I went to France and ended up working on a vineyard. And attached to the vineyard was a very small farm, and there were a couple of pigs, and we had to look after the pigs. So that was swineherd. Uh, How did you kill the pig? Oh, well, we, we trod the grapes in the old-fashioned way, and then at the end of the lees, the pips and the skin is nutritious, so you're supposed to feed it to the pigs. But I was a bit drunk that day, so I left it. Next day, I was too hungover. It had all been sitting out in the sun, so it started to ferment without me knowing it. So by the time I fed it to the pigs, it was fermented, and they got drunk. And they got so drunk, one of them didn't make it. So I killed a pig by giving it an alcoholic overdose. That was the end of my That's career as a swineherd. Yeah. So the, the great, uh, but there's there's more in here though. The, the hi-fi hi-fi journalist. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, a lot. Some of those jobs were between being undergraduate and postgraduate. There was a year between undergraduate and postgraduate. So I was a tax man for a little while, just for a few months, just you know, a very menial office job in Edinburgh. Um, when I left university in '86, my wife was working in London. We got married, moved to London. And I got a job at Middlesex Polytechnic as a secretary in the National Folktale Centre. So we were collecting folktales, which was quite fun. Uh, and then I got a job on a hi-fi magazine, reviewing hi-fi equipment, which was fantastic. Got to take lots of expensive hi-fi equipment home and listen to records and CDs and then write about it. Um, but all of that was getting in the way. So I was actually having to write the books weekends and evenings. you know. And so I had to be very, very very uh, structured in my approach because uh, you know you, I've only got the weekend and I'm trying to write a book I was writing a book a year you know and ha- and holding down a full time job uh, and it was fine I mean I could do it I could do it but when my wife Miranda said look let's get out of here let's go and live in France and you can be a full time writer I went okay okay and uh, and then the panic set in uh, you know because suddenly that was the only source of income we had was going to be my books and I, I, start, I started having panic attacks and I would drive with a 2CV and I would drive through the nighttime empty roads of rural France screaming, <laughs> screaming. Where in France were you? Southwest, near Perigueux, in the Perigord. Mm-hmm. It's where both our kids were born. Uh, yeah, but you know, that dist- I thought I had to get away from Edinburgh to write fiction about Edinburgh. And then I had to panic when I moved back to Edinburgh thinking, oh, now I'm living back here, can I write about the place? Because I was 10 years away from Edinburgh, ten, four years in London, six years in France. Uh, and so it was, that was a nervous time as well when we moved back to Edinburgh with our kids and I had to try and write a book in Edinburgh. But it worked. In terms of the, the process of, of writing, I, I read that you actually don't know who done it until two-thirds of the way through a book, which I think is very interesting in terms of how you kind of structure the plot how, how can your own character surprise you in that way oh lots of writers do this I mean I think people have got the idea that crime fiction is a it's like a diagram or it's like a puzzle and you can construct it almost like a crossword or like a geometric shape and you must know everything that's going to happen before you start writing it you know the end and you work backwards most crime writers I've met don't we work forwards we start at the beginning with a crime and we don't know who done it necessarily. And we write the first draft knowing as little as the detectives, getting to know stuff as we write, and then working out who done it. 
who, who it must have been. Uh, and yeah, it's actually sometimes been the second draft before I work out who done it. I wrote a book called The Hanging Garden. I had no idea even by the end of the first draft who the killer was. But the book tells you. The book surprises you. And it, it seems to work for me every time. It's bizarre. You trust to the muse. You trust to the book. I, in one of the Rebus novels, I had a character who was a, an MSP, a member of the Scottish Parliament. I thought, well, this is useful. He'll be in the next three books. He was dead by page 50. And the book told me to do it. The book said, we don't need this guy. So I thought, well, who killed him? I don't know. I mean, so I've got another body, and I don't know who killed anybody in this book, for God's sake. Uh, but it all came good in the end. It all came good. The book knows more than I do. The book, there's, there's a, a secret shape that I can't see when I begin the story that reveals itself to me by writing the story. What do you tend to begin with in terms of the, the idea then? There's usually a theme I want to explore, that kind of question that I want to find an answer to, to do with you know, some moral question or some question to do with politics or social justice or whatever it happens to be. Maybe there's been a true crime, there's been something happened that I've read about in a newspaper or a magazine. Uh, I use that as the kind of starting point, and then I, everything else is fiction, and I just start to make stuff up. And I mean, with a new book, uh, In a House of Lies, it was a story I read in Private Eye about the murder, unsolved murder of a private eye uh, in the southeast of England many years ago, which keeps coming up again. He was investigating links between uh, corrupt cops and the criminal establishment, and he was hacked to death in a pub car park. And I thought, oh, it just resonated. I thought, there's a lot I can do with that. And when you're working at this relatively high cadence, so book a year or book, in some cases, two books a year, how do you do that? How long does the first draft take? Do you handwrite type? What's your, your kind of process from you know, starting work on a new book through to, through to getting to this? Well, I don't write two books a year anymore. And I don't even write one book a year anymore. I write one book every two years now because I'm highly successful and I, I can afford not to. Uh, and I'm slowing down as I get older as well. Um, but the process hasn't changed much. I mean, for example, with this new book, I got the idea for it in January this year. Um, started penciling a few notes, but not too many. When I got the when I got the notion of where the starting point was, which was some kids finding the skeleton in a car in some woods, I thought, okay, that's the that's the opening page or the opening scene. I just started writing. I got up to a place. We've got a place in Cromarty, a wee fishing village, and uh, in the north of Scotland. I take my laptop computer with me. I go up there. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no TV. I sit down and I start to write. And I write every day. I write seven days a week. And that's not changed, really, since I became a full-time writer. When I'm writing a book, I write very quickly. So I'll write 3,500 words a day, seven days a week. In five weeks, you've got 100,000 words. And how many drafts will it go through? Well, the first draft is terrible. The first draft is me just finding out what the hell this might be about. So I never show that to anybody. I don't show it to my best friends or my wife or anybody. Um, it just does the plot work. And then everything else gets tidied up in the second. Well, it starts to get tidied up in the second draft. I'll tell you what makes it a quicker process is I do the research after the first draft. When I was young, I would do all the research before I started writing the book, and I could spend weeks researching hemophilia for a character. And then finally, when I started writing the book, I needed two sentences, so I'd wasted in inverted commas quite a lot of time. Now I wait till the first draft is written, then I do the research. And so by then I know what I need to know, not what I might need to know. So that speeds up the research process, miraculously. What, and what actually to do the research, do you have people you find yourself going to recurrently for that? You know, cops or uh, pathologists or people like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got a small cadre of professionals that I can go to for advice. I don't hang out with the cops. I don't want the books to become PR exercises for the police. 
I just go to them when I've got a specific question. I mean, I do hang out a bit with retired cops. They're quite fun. Um, but nobody that's going to really give me a lot of information is going to be useful to me with the books now. Um, but, you know, once the second draft's done, then I might show it to my wife. And she'll pencil in the margins. This doesn't quite work. This is an information dump. What's happened to Rebus's dog? Why is he not going home and feeding it and taking it for a walk? All kinds of relevant stuff, good stuff. So then it gets edited before it goes to the editor. How so, do you deal with criticism now? Because you said with your first book you wouldn't, t- you wouldn't take down any notes. And- yeah, well, I don't like it. I mean, by the time the book comes to my editor here in London, um, my wife has edited it. I go, well, this, this is as good as it can get now, surely. And then my editor comes along and says, Ian, can you just add a bit more tension? And you go, where? And he goes, everywhere. <laughs> you think, well, that's quite a big note. Um, let's, let's discuss it. And I will, I'll, by that stage, I will fight my corner because I reckon I've, I've pretty much got a book that works by that stage. It's a third draft minimum by the time they're seeing it. Um, and, I mean, In a House of Lies was a quite a quiet, elegiac book when I was writing it. And then the editor said, can you put in a bit more pace and a bit more action? And so I did. So it's a slightly different book from the book I envisaged when I started. And we always talk uh, with everyone on the podcast, as frank as we can, about money and writing. You've talked a lot about that. When, when, did it, when did you start making big money from your work? And when did you start giving a third of it away? That was... uh, I, I mean, I give between... It's not always a third of my income goes to charity. I mean, it's between a quarter and a third, I would guess, in good years. Uh, when did I start that? I started that quite a few years ago. Um, big money. When did the big money come in? I don't know. I would have thought it would have been Rebus novel number uh, 11, 12, 13 maybe. Um, and what changed? I, 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 remember, I remember it well. I was, in, I, I was in America on a book tour and it was hopeless. It was cold and it was wet and I was in a motel and I think I was snowed in almost and I think my event had been cancelled that night. And I phoned my wife back in Edinburgh. She said, should your six monthly royalty statements come in? You get royalty statements twice a year for your backlist sales. I said, yeah. She said, it's six figures. I went, oh, that's a mistake. Uh, so I phoned my agent and I said, look, there's been a mistake with my royalty. He said, no. He said, no. And what it was, was it was the kind of critical mass. It was people who'd read the most recent book, had liked it, and gone back and bought everything. Mm-hmm. And if enough, of pe- so enough people do that, everything was in print. So if you grab them at book eight and they go back and read the first seven, hallelujah. And so my six-monthly royalty statement had gone from four figures to, to six figures. And I thought, well, that is a substantial change in my fortunes. Um, and that was a, that was a joke. It was, it was pretty, I mean, it was, it was terrible. I was stuck in the middle of nowhere in America and snowed in in a horrible motel. Uh, and my wife was back in Edinburgh thinking, we can buy a bigger house. Uh, but it was great, you know, because it was after all those years of slogging and, you know, my first Rebus book, I think I got 500 quid for Knots and Crosses, I think, maybe maybe 800 quid for Knots and Crosses. And then, you know, now you're talking seven figures for book deals. But it took a long time to get there. And I was very pleased it took a long time to get there, which is maybe why I give something back now I can afford to. You know, I mean, you can see I don't dress in Armani. Uh, I drink beer and I buy records. That's pretty much where the money goes. So there's quite a bit left over that we don't need. And because our youngest son's quite seriously disabled, we got involved with a lot of charities, a lot of families and a lot of charities, families of special needs adults and special needs kids and charities that deal with them. And we thought we can help these people financially. And uh, so that's when we started giving money to charity. And my wife, our accountant said, look, do you want to set up a trust so that people don't need to know it's you doing it? I went, yeah, great. 
So nobody knows the name of the trust. We keep that as private as we can. So it means we can give money without anybody knowing it's us. Did you ever have a plan B career-wise other than... (laughs) Rock star? No, no career. You know what? I mean, it was... uh, Yeah, I mean, that was terrifying as well. I I guess maybe teaching. I mean, I'd always thought as a a young man, as a student, that I wanted to teach, being based in a university. I don't think I could teach creative writing. I've tried it. I was visiting professor at UEA, University of East Anglia, two years ago. And it was hard work because I don't think there is. There, it's not a science. Mm-hmm. At university, they try and teach it as though it is a science, and it's not. And every time I got students in a one-on-one situation in a tutorial room, I would say, look, try and have some fun. Try and forget that you're in an academic environment. Try and refine the you that sat and wrote poems and stories and scribbled things down when you were a kid because that you is still the most important part of being a writer. Um... And I think that was the only really useful piece of advice I ever gave them, you know, was to try and have some fun with it. Do you feel in Edinburgh that you're, you're kind of part of a community of writers in the city, J.K. Rowling, Kate Atkinson, Alexander McCall-Smith? Bizarre, isn't it? Do you hang out? Or? We don't hang out. We don't. I mean, Kate Atkinson, bless her, I heard, she hardly ever comes out to play and I hardly ever see her. I think I saw her at the opera a couple of months ago and I, that was the first time I'd seen her in years. Jo Rowling keeps herself pretty much to herself. Uh, Sandy McCall-Smith is always away, he's always in America on tour or somewhere on tour, so we don't see each other that much. Um, uh, But I live two doors away from Alexander McCall-Smith, so I do see him from time to time, and Joe Rowling used to live around the corner, and there was the odd occasion when all three of us would be in the local cafe at the same time. So we would sit and chat, but it didn't happen very often. Would you talk about your writing? Well, no, we talk about the traffic and the weather mostly. <laughs> but I mean, I was part of a group of writers who did used to meet fairly regularly in the Abbotsford pub in Edinburgh and then go for a curry. And Ian Banks was the kind of glue that held us together. And when Ian Banks died, we kind of stopped meeting up so much, which is a bit of a shame. I think we just couldn't envisage still doing that without him being there. Were you ever tempted to do a kind of Ian Banks thing and have two brands, you know, the doing more literary stuff versus the no I mean I did to the extent the Jack Harvey novels yeah. I guess were my second brand you know like he he had added the M to do sci-fi and I hid behind Jack Harvey to write thrillers big fat airport thrillers um, but no I, I, I never quite went that far I, you know what I mean I can I, I don't feel duty bound to write crime fiction it's just that I enjoy it and the themes I want to explore and to me can best be done in that genre and as long as that's the best way for me to write the stories I want to write, then why would I do anything else? Do you ever feel lonely writing? Because obviously it's it's a solitary job. No, no. It's I mean, it's getting less solitary all the time. You know, I mean, as soon as you step away from the computer now, you switch your phone and there's Twitter and there's emails and there's this and there's that. So many distractions. Do you care about uh, the reception that you know tweets that you get from from readers? If there's any criticism or uh, well, I don't. I mean, bless them. I don't get too much criticism. But you know, somebody did did tweet me the day after the book came out and said there's a spelling mistake on page seventy five, which is always really annoying that these get through, still get through the bloody net after all this time. Uh, so that'll be corrected because I, I, I emailed my publisher and said, look, here's a spelling mistake. And they said, oh, we'll correct that in the reprint and also in the paperback. So that's good. Uh, no, most people are very nice when they meet you. They don't They don't tend to want to tell you that your latest book is boring or bad. Um, so I quite like that. I use Twitter almost like a diary. I can scroll back and see what I was doing on any particular day. I used to keep a page-a-day diary when I was young. 
that's one other piece of advice I used to give to young writers was just try and write every day in a diary is a good way of making you do that. Um, my sister would give me these big diaries, big chunky diaries, and I felt I had to fill up every line. Even though nothing happened to me that day, I would have to fill up every line. What would you write about? Would they be observations of people? Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Lists of LPs I would buy if I had enough money or TV shows I'd seen that night. Or just wee scraps of poems and song lyrics and just anything. Just sitting and writing for the sheer joy of writing. Uh, and nobody ever saw them. I mean, they're tucked away. I've got them at home. But I did a thing called My Teenage Diary, which is on Radio 4, and it's Rufus Hound, a comedian, interviewing you with extracts from your teenage diaries. That was quite a cathartic experience. I did that year before last. Because it started with me, age 13, listening to prog rock. Ended up with me, age 19, at university, and my mum dying, and me joining a punk band. So it was quite... My teenage years were not without incident. Could you tell us a bit about your experience with adaptation, both for stage and for TV? Well, I, I've never been involved with the TV adaptations. I walked away from it. I just left them and got on with it. Um, I've never watched an episode of Rebus on TV because uh, I didn't want actors to replace the Rebus that was inside my head and nestling quite nicely there. I'd spoken to people. When it, when it was first picked up for TV, I spoke to a few folk whose work had been adapted, like uh, um, Colin Dexter, who did Inspector Morse. And he said, well, it will change the way you write about your character. And he had changed Morse in the books to be more like John Thaw, the actor, because he was so seduced by the performance. And I didn't want that to happen, so I thought, I'm never going to watch it. I'm not going to let an actor interfere with my rebus. Um, so I never written a script, never looked at the script, never watched it. Play was different. The play that's just come out was very different because I worked very closely with Rona Munro, who co-wrote it with me. And uh, she's a proper playwright. I'm not. Um, and, and we just sat and workshopped it and, we, and she would say, so who is Rebus? And I thought, I'm not sure I've ever thought about it like that before. Or if I've thought about it, I've never had to say it to somebody. So she would say, who is he really? Who is he? What makes him tick? What, makes, what, do, what does he think when he wakes up in the morning? And so she got, very quickly, we got a, a deepening sense of the main characters, not just Rebus, but also Cafferty, the gangster, and uh, Siobhan Clark, the detective. Uh, and and we did this triangular relationship that was going to work powerfully well on stage and get a little bit of depth that might not have come out in the novels. You say that that you don't want uh, a TV rebus to interfere with your with your own character. Do you worry about it interfering with your readers? Uh, well, yeah, because they, I mean, yeah, it's one of these things. I mean, I know it well. From you know, once you've seen The Godfather, you can't read the book and not see those actors. Once you've seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you can't read the book and not see Jack Nicholson. It, is, it can be very frustrating. And people on Twitter will say things like, you know, I, whenever I read a Rebus book, I see Ken Stott, um, who played Rebus latterly in the TV shows. Uh, well, that's fine. If that's who you see, that's who you see. But there's plenty. That's not who I see. Mm. And there's plenty of other readers out there who wouldn't see Ken Stott either. They would have their own. Uh, and I don't. I never describe Rebus. I hardly ever describe him physically in the books because I want readers to put their own impressions there. I look at the world through his eyes, so I never really feel the need to describe him physically. I think probably in the course of 20-odd books, his eye colour is described once, his hair colour is described once, and his general height is probably described once. Have you ever done other bits of screenwriting or other kind of literary jobs you've been asked to do or to, to punch up dialogue or, or things like that? No, 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 uh, I haven't. I mean, I've, I've done, um, I've written treatments for films and TV shows that never got made based, based, on, based on my own ideas. Yeah. The one thing I did do, um, I guess, in terms of adaptation was take a, a character from the DC universe, 
John Constantine Hellblazer, which is a long-running comic book. And they contacted me and said, oh, from interviews, we, we appreciate you're a big fan of comics. Is there any character you'd love to write about? And I said, yeah, I'd love to write about this guy, John Constantine, who's a private detective who just happens to deal with the supernatural. And, uh, and so I did a 200-page graphic novel, a one-off 200-page graphic novel, um, working with an artist based on that. And some Constantine fans liked it and some didn't. Some felt it was pushing them too far away from the character he was in the continuing comics. Uh, but I had a hell of a lot of fun doing it. Would you do it again? Probably would. Probably would. I've just got a, a, some very short comic coming out soon with a guy called Sean Phillips, who's a fantastic artist, for a collection that's coming out about World War One, to you know, to commemorate 1918. And they asked lots of writers and artists to work together on seven or eight page comics that would that would have a view on what happened during World War One. That was fun. I like. Uh, I, I like. I like being pushed a little bit out of my comfort zone. So working with Rona on the play was pushing me out of my comfort zone. Working with a graphic artist pushes me out of my comfort zone. I like it when people say, can you do a, Index on Censorship recently said to me, can you do a non-Rebus short story set in the future about the death of the book? And I went, I'll give it a go. You know, and I, and I created something that they were very happy with. Um, but it's all, but you know, in the end of the day, and they say, well, why don't you keep doing that? Why don't you, tr you know, try writing a, you've written a f story set in the future. Why not try a science fiction novel? Nah, I'm a crime writer. That's what I like doing best. And this is your, House of Lies is your 25th, I think. Uh, 22nd, 23rd, God knows. I've lost count. <laughs> Rebus, will this be your last Rebus? Book? I don't know. I, I, you know, I get asked that a lot when a new book comes out. Is this the last we'll see of Rebus? I, I don't know the answer. It depends on me getting an idea for a story, a theme I want to explore, and a plot where he's the best character to be in the story. And that might not always be the case. It's been the case mostly, and it's been the case recently. Um, I've not got anything. I've got no, I've got no ideas for the next book. I don't have to write it, or I don't have to. I don't have to give it to the publisher until twenty twenty. Could it be one of the other characters? Yeah, it could. I mean, it could be Cafferty, the villain. I mean, we could take it from his point of view. It could be Siobhan Clark. I think. I'm confident now. I wasn't, as a young man, I wasn't confident I could write from a woman's point of view, and especially a woman police officer. Not many men in the crime field wrote well about women, or do write well about women. Um, but, uh, but I feel confident now that I could write about Siobhan Clark. And uh, so maybe, she, des she deserves a book. She deserves a book. She deserves to come out from under Rebus's shadow and have her own adventures. Um, so maybe that's what I'll do next. But I don't know. I don't know. And as a, a final thing, you, you touched earlier on that people kind of getting away from the need for resolution. Um, we had a romance novelist on the show a while ago, and she said that in her world it's still non-negotiable. You still have to have a happy ending. Do, but do you see that... Could you talk a bit more about how people are, are happy with threads left hanging and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think as the crime novel has come closer to the literary novel, I mean, now you can study crime fiction at universities, um, you get crime novels long-listed for the Booker Prize, um, you get literary novelists writing crime fiction uh, um, under pseudonyms and not under pseudonyms, so it's, it, the, the edges are blurring, these distinctions are blurring uh, a lot. A lot, and I'm, I'm, I feel really positive about that. But all I can do as a crime writer is keep writing better books that are taking on serious subjects and doing it in a proper manner. Uh, and eventually, all these barriers and uh, will will disappear. And you're going to a bookshop, and all that will just be in there is books. And they'll take you out of your comfort zone. 
I love there's a there's a bookshop somewhere I forget where, but they wrap up they sometimes wrap up books so you don't know what you're getting. You just pay five quid and you get a book. In London or no, I think somewhere in, maybe in, somewhere in America or some small indie somewhere. But I just love that idea that you're going to be taking out your comfort zone because we're all a bit you know you get you get blinkered people who only want to read literary fiction who only want to read science fiction. Stories are stories and good stories are good stories and we shouldn't be as entrenched as. I don't know, as the establishment has made us, you know, bookshops put us in little boxes and academia puts us in little boxes and romance novels have to have pink covers or a kind of strong, hunky man on the front or whatever and crime novels used to have to have guns and strings of pearls with blood on them. And we need to get away from that and just concentrate on the fact that, that there's something wonderful about storytelling and something wonderful about the fact that human beings have this hunger, this constant need for narrative but not so much for closure. Well, that sounds a, a really good place to finish on. Thanks for talking so candidly about a, a broad range of topics and wishing you all the very best with this book and hopefully many more to come. Thanks very much. Hello, it's us again with a life update. So uh, I've been in Kazakhstan uh, doing a piece for Business Week, which was very interesting. Uh, I was in Almaty and Astana on the Vasti Steps. Um, I drank some fermented camel's milk, which I cannot recommend. <laughs> uh, and I'm now back and uh, doing last bits and bobs of my book. Um, Ellie, what about you? Um, so I'm wrapping up my last week at GQ. The new issue of GQ is out uh, now in which there is a long read that I've done about a company called Vida which is a company that basically offers virtual dating assistance uh, for hire for them to ghostwrite your Tinder messages swipe for you, text for you and it's uh, bringing a whole... What level of success? Uh, Yeah, really good success I think it's like a 63% success rate I mean you will basically you'll get a date yeah and not only a date but you'll be in a relationship within three months guaranteed uh, there's a percentage for that <laughs> you'll have to read in the piece but um, yeah so that was pretty fascinating speaking to um, men who have used that not many women use it and then I've also written a piece in GQ about performative masculinity in the whatsapp group chat goodness um, <laughs> we'll, we'll go to that another time anyway this has been Always Take Notes hosted by me Simon Aikham and me Eleanor Halls our producer is Nicola Keane. Our communities editor is Zara Hankier. And Jess Danheiser composed our score. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. You can find us online and see the rest of our podcast archive at alwaystakenotes.com. You can follow us on social media at Take Notes Always on Twitter, Always Take Notes on Facebook and Instagram. And please do leave a review on iTunes if you've enjoyed the episode. If you feel so inclined, you can also support the podcast via Patreon page by searching Always Take Notes. Great. Thank you. Bye.